This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. You have reached the end of the lesson. Please continue listening to this side of the tape for the next lesson. I want to introduce you to several major strains of consequentialist thinking. And the best place and the usual place to begin this study of consequentialism is with hedonism. Hedonism is not only one example of a consequentialist ethic, it is perhaps the major example of consequentialism. There are non-hedonistic consequentialists. Oh, I love that sentence. I love. Let me repeat it, because I've never uttered that sentence before. There are non-consequentialist. I'm sorry. There are non-hedonistic consequentialists in the history of philosophy, but there they belong to the minority. There. Aren't you glad you heard me say that? So we're going to talk about hedonism. Those of you who took um, the history of philosophy course last fall will have heard much of what I'm going to present over the next ten minutes, but that's okay. It's so good that you'll enjoy hearing it the second time anyway. I hope. Hedonism, what is it? Well, in order to define hedonism, we really need to make a distinction between psychological hedonism and ethical hedonism. I'm not going to say any more about psychological hedonism except to give you a definition of it. Psychological hedonism is the belief that all men do in fact always seek pleasure. Psychological hedonism is a descriptive theory. It reports what it, sa- what it believes to be the case. And what it believes to be the case is this. No matter what you do in life, a psychological hedonist believes, you are motivated by a desire for pleasure. Now some people say, well, what about the mother who rushes into a burning building to save her baby? She's not seeking pleasure. Well, a psychological hedonist would say, yes, she is. No matter what a human being does, what they ultimately want is pleasure. The reason the mother rushes into that building is because she cannot she cannot stand the prospect of living the rest of her life without her baby, let's say. So her action is not altruistic. She is really trying to avoid future pain for herself or secure future pleasure for herself. Now, even though I don't have more time to talk about psychological hedonism here, I hope you will all realize that this is an inadequate psychological theory. I'll tell you, if you want to know what's wrong with psychological hedonism, go to the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and um, I think the big article on hedonism will introduce you to the major problems with this. We're, We're concerned in this course with ethical hedonism, and that is the view that says all men ought to seek pleasure. Notice there's a difference between saying all men do in fact seek pleasure and saying all men ought to seek pleasure. There's an irony in the history of ethics that some people have tried to base ethical hedonism upon psychological hedonism. Jeremy Bentham, for example, a man whom I'll talk about probably next week, He lived in the 18th century, 19th century. Jeremy Bentham said, ethical hedonism is true because it follows from psychological hedonism. That's a bad, bad line of thinking. Here's why. 
Ethical hedonism, when it says all men ought to seek pleasure, implies that men could seek something other than pleasure. Think about that. When I tell you you ought to do something, I'm assuming that you could do otherwise. That's why I'm telling you you ought to do it. So many philosophers have noticed that if ethical hedonism is true, then psychological hedonism cannot be true. It cannot be true that all men ought to seek pleasure and that they do in fact seek pleasure at the same time. If somebody cannot help but seek pleasure, why would you tell him that he ought to seek pleasure? You follow me? doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, whether you follow that or not, I'm not going to... Well, there is next week's quiz. I, 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 don't, I don't presently think that I will burden you with that point next week. So, we're not going to be talking anymore about psychological hedonism. We're going to be talking about ethical hedonism, which is the belief that pleasure is the highest good, which is the belief that all human beings ought to seek pleasure. All right, now there's a further distinction to make. We can ask, whose pleasure should we seek? And so we have a difference between egoistic ethical hedonism, whose pleasure are we talking about in this case? My own pleasure. That's right. If I am an egoistic hedonist, I believe that I have a duty to seek my own pleasure. Lots of students like the ring of that, okay? I've often wondered what a television preacher, how successful he might be if he'd go on television and preach the gospel of egoistic hedonism. Well, I, wait, I don't have to speculate. There are preachers who are doing this, all right? <laughs> the health and wealth gospel, what is that but egoistic? Well, forgive me for that. I should not, I should not say things like that. The other kind of ethical hedonism is altruistic hedonism. Whose pleasure should I be seeking under this view of things? The pleasure of other people. That's not quite as exciting, is it? <laughs> it's not quite as exciting. In fact, the famous maxim of the major altruistic hedonist goes like this. So act in such a way that you always seek the happiness of the greatest number of people. Oh, boy, that's great. Now, there's a further distinction we can make. Oh, I love these distinctions. In the history of ethics, there were two classic versions of egoistic hedonism. And those of you who took the History of Philosophy course know what they were. Can anybody remember? What was the first version of egoistic hedonism way back in ancient Greece? Cyrenaicism. That's wonderful. Give yourself an A. Cyrenaicism. And the founder of Cyrenaicism was a man named Aristippus, who was a contemporary of Socrates in ancient Athens. And the second version of egoistic hedonism was that developed by the Greek philosopher Epicurus who lived um, oh after the time of Aristotle. Back to hedonism. The Cyrenaics <coughs> were people whose approach to the moral life can be summed up in these words. I, pleasure is the highest good. My pleasure is the highest good. The pleasure of my body is the highest good. The pleasure of my body at this particular moment is the highest good. Now, I want to suggest that all of us are going to run into people who think that way. All of us know have met people like that already in our lives. 
As some of you know, the Cyrenaic philosophy of life can be summed up in the, in the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. The Cyrenaic said, don't worry about tomorrow. Get as much physical pleasure now as you can get, because you may not be alive tomorrow in order to get more of that physical pleasure. Back when I was younger, this used to be the moral philosophy of the average college sophomore. And I went to a Christian college. <laughs> but things have changed, and this is now the moral philosophy of the average high school sophomore, I suspect. All right. It's also the moral philosophy of the average NBA player and uh, lots of other people in the world. It's also the moral philosophy of a lot of candidates for president in this country. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. As some of you know, what I find interesting in all of this is the fact that when we look for counsel and wise advice to shun this way of life, we don't, we don't have to direct people to Scripture. I mean, let's suppose you're in your office in ten years, all right, and your shingle is out that says deontologist or whatever, and some kid with some teenager with really serious moral problems comes in, you know, and you find out that this kid doesn't know anything, doesn't care about the moral life, let's say that his life exemplifies the Cyrenaic attitude. Well, you could, of course, reach for your Bible, and that, that might not be a bad thing to do. But there are many people who would be more... <coughs> Uh, influenced on, in, in certain kinds of settings if you simply said to them, well, let me tell you about the great Epicurus and how he reacted, re how he reflected about this physical, sensual, this crude, sensual hedonism that has characterized your life up till now. Epicurus <clears throat> was an egoistic hedonist. He believed that the highest good is my own pleasure. But Epicurus made some distinctions that you don't find in the simplistic worldview of the Cyrenaics. For example, Epicurus recognized the difference. I'm going to erase some material here so we can use the other board, rest of the board. Epicurus recognized... <clears throat> that some pleasures are more intense than others. And other pleasures last longer than others. We could call this intensity versus duration. Now, it just so happens that the pleasures of the body are very intense. And we won't get too graphic here, all right? But certain physical pleasures can be so intense that they can literally knock a person over. Wow! Woo! What a pleasure! The downside to physical pleasure is that they're very fleeting. They don't last very long. You may have pigged out last Thanksgiving, all right? It's a great day to eat, isn't it? Thank God we live in America and not in Moscow on Thanksgiving Day. But quite frankly, what kicks are you getting today from the pleasures you got from last Thanksgiving's Sunday dinner? Physical pleasure is intense, but it doesn't last very long. So just keep in mind that duration is something that you ought to consider. All right. There's also then the pleasures of the body versus the pleasures of the mind. Now, Epicurus noticed something else. He noticed that the pleasures of the mind, the pleasures of the body, rather, presuppose pain. You cannot experience the pleasures of the body unless you, first of all, experience pain. Now, we have, a, we have a special name for that 
special kind of pain. We call it need, desire, want. You cannot enjoy the pleasures of eating unless you are hungry. And hunger is a lack, a need. And if the hunger goes unsatisfied long enough, it becomes a gnawing pain in the pit of your stomach. All right? So the pleasures of the body presuppose physical pain. Moreover, Epicurus said, overindulgence in the pleasures of the body produces physical pain. If you overdo it with regard to any physical activity, you are going to experience pain. I hadn't played golf in seven months. And uh, I went out a few weeks ago, tore the course to pieces. I mean, they had to close it down the next day. I <laughs> and the, you know, the pain, the pain, uh, that's what overindulgence in physical activity will do. Now, Epicurus had a very simple approach to life. It went like this. If you are a hedonist, you are not only interested in getting as much pleasure as you can get, you're also interested in avoiding as much pain as possible. What sense does it make to achieve, let's say, a hundred units of pleasure which are then followed by 200 units of pain. That is not the conduct of a sensible hedonist. It isn't. Now, what I used to do when I had, uh, <clears throat> of course, wild-living college sophomores as my students, is I used to take them through a homecoming weekend where this particular college sophomore, who was also a student in my ethics class, would begin his boozing and his carousing at 6 p.m. on Friday, all right? So that by midnight on Friday, let's say, this college sophomore had managed to achieve 300 units of pleasure. By, now, we will not graphically describe how he attained those 300 units of pleasure. Now, let me tell you, that's coming close to the Grauman's, uh, to the world record. All right, six hours, 300 units of pleasure. That's pretty big, all right? But this guy keeps going, all right? He's always got a bottle of something with him, and he's always doing, uh, by, so by, let's say, Saturday morning, Saturday 6 a.m., he's up to 400 units of pleasure. Keeps going. Of course, there's a law of diminishing returns here. So let's, let's say by the time the weekend is over, no sleep, three cases of beer, lots of other things that he's done, he's reached a maximum of 450 units. And then comes Monday morning. And he crawls out of bed, and I mean crawl, all right? And as he's crawling for the bathroom, he's vomiting every step of the way, all right? He drops his face in the vomit. <laughs> he wants to die. So that for the next 24, 36 hours, he experiences 600 units of pain. Epicurus says, this guy is one dumb hedonist. If pleasure is the highest good, then pain is the greatest evil. In fact, Epicurus said, if we could just come out even... That would be ideal if we could just get there, if we could just live a life that would give us a little balance of one unit of pleasure over everything else. That would be really living. Now, this kind of reflection led Epicurus to advise people that the wise hedonist will avoid the pleasures of the body. Because when you pursue the pleasures of the body to extreme, you're going to lose more than you can win. You're going to lose because you're going to have to experience need or hunger. Many of you have seen the movie Cool Hand Luke. 
where Luke bets people that he can um, eat so many hard-boiled eggs, all right? Remember that scene in that movie? By the end of that scene, I'm ready to throw up myself, all right? But that first hard-boiled egg that Luke eats, Paul Newman eats, is, you know, put a little salt, a little pepper on it, a little mayonnaise, pretty good, right? But remember, he's got to eat so many hard-boiled eggs in, what, five or ten minutes? So within no time at all, they're shoving hard-boiled eggs into his face. The pleasure doesn't last. It's pretty hard to find any pleasure in that situation. You can't enjoy eating unless you're hungry. You can't enjoy drinking unless you're thirsty. And the same applies to all other physical pleasures. <laughs> During my first or second year at Western Kentucky University, a student at Tennessee Tech set the world's record for drinking consecutive bottles of Coca-Cola. I think he drank 20 in a row, all right? Now, he, he may have enjoyed the first one. You know, when you're thirsty. In fact, let me, let me get out my apple juice and simulate this guy, all right? Ah, all right. I'm thirsty right now. I've been talking for two hours. Oh, is that good. But let me tell you, if somebody forced me to drink 30 or 40 of these in a row, I don't think I'd enjoy the last 20 or 25. This guy drank 20 to 25 bottles of Coke in a row. I often said to my students, I said, girls, imagine that you were out dating that guy that night. Wouldn't that be a bad evening? <laughs> 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 Every time the guy moves, you know, he, he's belching all over the place. Ah, he's also suffering great pain. So... What Epicurus' message is this. Live a life of moderation. Don't indulge in the pleasures of the body. Enjoy them in moderation. You must eat to survive. You must drink. But do it in moderation, not to excess. Rather, Epicurus said, pursue the pleasures of the mind. Because... They do not presuppose pain in order to enjoy them. Overindulgence in the pleasures of the mind uh, does not produce uh, pain. And the pleasures of the mind last and last and last. They last longer. So, Epicurus' advice to women would be, get thee to a nunnery. That's the life of the hedonist, of the Epicurean. Get thee to a nunnery. I suppose Epicurus's advice to men would be, enter some seminary. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, look, look, you, you'll have so little money that you will not be able to over and overdo the pleasures of the body, right? Amen. Okay. So, uh... This, this particular set of insights from Epicurus, I think, does contain an important antidote to the excesses of the Cyrenaic. But now, here is a brief and quick evaluation of even Epicurus's hedonism from a Christian perspective. What, one, one could be a Christian hedonist. All right? You could be. But I think if you were a Christian hedonist, even though you ended up living an exemplary life, a life of moderation and temperance and so on, there would still be elements of your moral philosophy that would be unacceptable, I think, on biblical grounds. Let me just offer, well, in fact, what I'm going to do here is offer some other philosophers' criticisms of hedonism, and I think want to suggest those other philosophers' criticisms of hedonism are in tune with what I think a wise Christian would want to say. Take this argument, for example. Let's, let's call it, um, oh, for want of a better word, let's call it argument number one. <laughs> All right? 
Argument number one would go like this. It would say, look, hedonism cannot be the highest good. Because if hedonism were the highest good, then it would follow by definition that all pleasures were good. But all pleasures are not good. There are many pleasures in life that are positively evil. And so the minute you recognize a difference between good pleasure and evil pleasure, the minute you recognize a difference between good pleasure and evil pleasure, you are admitting that there is something in the scale of values that is higher than pleasure itself. There is something else that sits in judgment over pleasure and makes it possible for us to distinguish between those pleasures that are good and those pleasures that are evil. So, the, and, and, so anybody who recognizes, admits that there is at least one evil pleasure in life cannot be a hedonist, even an Epicurean kind of hedonist. Now this argument, of course, comes from a fairly fav a famous philosopher. But the Christian, I think, wants to agree with this philosopher. His name is Plato. And to put it in another way, Plato said, if pleasure and goodness are equivalent, if pleasure and goodness are equivalent, then there can be no such thing as an evil pleasure. But there are evil pleasures, the pleasure of the rapist, for example. The pleasure of those perverted people in the Nazi movement who uh, got their kicks from murdering women and children, murdering anybody. What all of that shows is that pleasure and the good are not equivalent, and therefore hedonism is false. Amen. It's a good argument. Argument number two. Again, it comes from a, f a famous philosopher, but I think it's a, it's a line of thinking that Christians uh, should, uh, should welcome. This second line of argument is sometimes called the paradox of hedonism. The paradox of hedonism. It's kind of a psychological argument that invites people to reflect upon those times when they have achieved pleasure in their lives. The paradox of hedonism can be summed up in this sentence. And you'll have to get it quickly because I'm too lazy to write it on the board. The paradox of hedonism recognizes that the single-minded pursuit of pleasure is always self-defeating. The single-minded pursuit of pleasure is always self-defeating. Now what that means is this. The more a human being seeks pleasure consciously and directly, the less that person is going to experience pleasure. You experience pleasure by pursuing other things. What you do is you say, hmm, I think I want to read a good book, or see a good movie, or listen to good music. Hard to find good music these days. So that the last thing you're thinking about is pleasure. You're thinking about music, or literature, or art, or food, or something. And then all of a sudden you find that you're experiencing pleasure. But the more you focus on pleasure, the less pleasure you're going to get. That's the paradox of hedonism. Now, I won't embarrass you by asking for testimony time here, you know, I, but I dare say that when we were growing up, and this might have been true in my case when I was a teenager, there might have been weekends when we all looked forward to a weekend of pleasure and found that there wasn't much pleasure there because pleasure was too, preem too preeminent in our thinking. It's when you forget pleasure and focus on other things. Friendship. Love. Maybe, you know, just once, just once, I'd like to hit a good three-iron shot. All right? Just once. Oh, boy, when you do it. Uh. Now, what you don't do is, you, as you're addressing the ball, you say, Ooh, I want pleasure in the next 30 seconds. No, come on. Don't ever play golf with somebody like that. Stay away from What you say is, 
I just want to hit this ball on the sweet spot, all right? And I want this thing to go 180 yards, and I want it to go straight, and I want it to nestle down gently two feet from the pin. Oh, oh, ecstasy! You don't know what pleasure is to, you know, but that doesn't happen very often. Okay, that argument comes from Aristotle. Pretty good argument. And finally, the third observation, and it too comes from Aristotle. He said, the big problem with hedonism is it pays, it gives pleasure too much importance in the human life. Now, Aristotle said pleasure is important. And Christians ought to recognize this. But we need to realize that pleasure is only one part of a well-rounded life. Only one part. And if you put it in perspective, you'll get it. And you'll enjoy life. But if you become a slave to pleasure, your whole life will get messed up. So Aristotle said, Recognize that pleasure is important, but keep it in balance. Keep it in perspective. Now, those, those are some good tips, I think, that we as Christians can, uh, can resonate with. Are all of the hedonists implying that pleasure is purely subjective? No, uh, they never really got that far in their thinking. In fact, in fact it is very difficult to define the word pleasure even today. Pleasure is a very complex phenomenon. You can write that down and laminate it in plastic and carry it next to your heart for the rest of your life. What is pleasure? All right, now watch. I'm going to experience some pleasure. I'm going to take a swig of apple juice. Mm. Oh, that's certainly better than not taking a swig of apple juice at that moment. But what are the factors that went into that pleasure that I experienced at that moment? I'll give you another example. I'll comb my hair. <laughs> I always get pleasure when I comb my hair. Now, what, are, what, what's, what goes on in that pleasure? I don't know. It's very difficult to explain, probably impossible to explain. Um, let me just uh, suggest something that you might want to do, and that is go over and get the Encyclopedia of Philosophy and read the article on pleasure. My guess is you're not going to get a whole lot of help out of that article, and that may not necessarily be the fault of the guy who wrote it. It's a very tough thing to explain. We know what pleasure is, but we don't necessarily know... We know what it is to feel pleasure, but we don't necessarily know what pleasure is. Okay, now we're going to pursue our search for uh, hedonism further, and we're now going to turn our attention to altruistic hedonism. And it's very strange that this, the world had to wait, 18, the world had to wait over 2,000 years for somebody to come along and defend altruistic hedonism. Now there are two there were two major thinkers who represented altruistic hedonism in the nineteenth century. One of them uh, was Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham. who lived from uh, 1748 to 1832. An Englishman, of course. The other famous altruistic hedonist was John Stuart Mill, one of England's most famous thinkers in the 19th century. He lived from 1806 to 1873. Now we might add one more thing to our little chart on the board. We might say that Jeremy Bentham 
represented a quantitative theory, a quantitative position, a position that emphasized the quantity of pleasure, and John Stuart Mill represented a, the, uh, a qualitative position, a position that stressed the role of quality in pleasure. Let me quickly go over this. <clears throat> Jeremy Bentham was a very strange man. In fact, most philosophers are a little weird, present company excluded. <laughs> now, many of you don't know, will never hear this anywhere else, but I might as well tell you how weird Jeremy Bentham was. Where did he teach? At Oxford or Cambridge? Anyway, at one of those two major British universities, he, he, left, he left most of his estate to that university. Let's say it was Cambridge. I don't really know. So that Cambridge was going to inherit the bulk of Jeremy Bentham's estate, but on one condition. <laughs> they would have to embalm his body and then they would have to wheel his embalmed body into all subsequent board meetings of the Cambridge University trustees. <laughs> I have a book somewhere in my office that has a picture of the embalmed body of Jeremy Bentham. Every time, now they, they've broken with tradition, you know, they finally got all of his money, but I swear to you that for years, every time there was a board meeting of the trustees of Cambridge University, they wheeled this body into the meeting, and he sat at the head of the table. <laughs> I understand Anthony Perkins once visited Cambridge, and he said, well, why don't you dress him and put him in a dress, all right? And you remind me of my mother. Uh, that's a bad, that's bad, and I... Um... <clears throat> okay, if any of you want to see that picture, I'll, I'll show it to you for a dollar after. <laughs> Jeremy Bentham said, since pleasure is the highest good, it follows that the more pleasure, the better. Anybody want to disagree with that? If pleasure is the highest good, then the more pleasure, the better. And what better way to, to produce pleasure than to bring happiness to the greatest number of people? And so was coined the alternative name for altruistic hedonism. The world began to call thinkers like this advocates of utilitarianism. They were utilitarians. Now, Jeremy Bentham refused to introduce any considerations of quality of pleasure into his thinking. For Jeremy Bentham, the only thing that mattered was the quantity of pleasure. No considerations at all about qualitative differences among pleasure. Now what Bentham did <clears throat> was develop something that he called the hedonic calculus. He thought it was so easy to calculate the quantity of pleasure that would follow from certain kinds of action, that any dumbbell could, could use what he called the hedonic calculus and thus discover what he should do in life. So here's how the hedonic calculus worked. What you would do is set up the two courses of action that you were considering. I suppose it might be let's say, paying your taxes and not paying your taxes. Now, what should I do? What, what advice will a hedonic calculus give me for this? And then you, would, then you take seven criteria, and uh, I'm going to give them to you, but you really can... Well, I'll give them to you. You consider the intensity of pleasure and pain. You consider the duration. You consider the certainty. You consider the promptness. Oh, and 
the, and there were seven, there were three others, so that there were seven criteria. And then what you do is this. You begin to calculate the approximate amounts of pleasure and pain that you would get if you pay your taxes and if you don't pay your taxes. Well, if I don't pay my taxes, then I have all of that extra money to shower upon myself. So let's say that gives me a hundred units of pleasure. Okay? If I don't, if I don't pay my taxes, I get a hundred units of pleasure. But what if I get caught? Well, then we, well, we'll just hold that off. If I do pay my taxes, I'm going to suffer a hundred units of pain. But what if I get caught? Well, then we, well, we'll just hold that off. If I do pay my taxes, I'm going to suffer a hundred units of pain. I won't have that money to do anything with. The duration. Well, if I don't pay my taxes, you know, I can, I can put that money in the bank and I can be drawing interest on it and so maybe I get a hundred more units of pleasure that way and the duration, oh, 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 I, we suffer for years thinking about all of the money. I, I figured out my daughter's taxes over the weekend. She doesn't make a whole lot of money, but boy, boy, are those liberals in Congress going to get a lot of money from her. You know, you, you just don't figure out, you just, 15%, which is her tax bracket, sounds like a little bit. But boy, that adds up, doesn't it? As those of you who've already figured out your taxes know. What are the, well, we play all these games. Anyway, Jeremy Bentham says at the end of the process, at the end of the process, you pick that action that has the greatest surplus of pleasure over pain. And that's what you should do. But the catch is this. The last factor that Bentham factors into his hedonic calculus is the extent, that is, the number of people who are affected by what you do. The number of people who are affected by what you do. Now, you see, I guess Bentham might say, if everybody didn't pay their taxes, then look at the pain and suffering that would follow from this. Uh, I'm not greatly moved by any of this, I want you to realize. Um, but the end result was that for Bentham it was a purely mechanical process. You could let a computer do it. You could, you could buy, I, I, can see, I can see the Radio Shack people now buying a moral decision-making computer, PC. All right? And it's programmed, and then you buy some program. Uh, Mike Tyson could probably invent it or something. And um, then what you do is whenever you face a moral decision, just, just put in the numbers for your hedonic calculus, and the computer will think about it for a few minutes, and then out will come the decision, you know, what you should do. It takes all of the agony out of moral decision-making. Just let your computer do it. And it's done solely on the basis of the quantity of pleasure. Well, this, of course, is, is absurd. The moral life isn't this simple. You can't just play games with numbers. You can't even quantify pleasure and pain. The whole procedure is nonsense. Jeremy Bentham must have been embalmed when he was writing this book. <laughs> All right? Now, after Bentham's book appeared, a lot of people who were sympathetic to hedonism were embarrassed by the silliness of this, by the simplistic approach uh, that Bentham took. And so two things happened. And they're very important in the history of hedonism, and they're very important in the history of utilitarianism. First of all, a famous anti-utilitarian named Thomas Carlyle uttered a famous statement that threw down the gauntlet to all utilitarians. Thomas Carlyle said, and this is such an important statement, I'm going to write it on the board. Thomas Carlyle, how do you spell his name? I don't know. Let's try that. Anyway, 
he wrote, hedonism is a pig's philosophy. <laughs> to which Bentham, at one of the board meetings, reportedly said, in a pig's eye it is, but I, I don't know. Here's what Thomas Carlyle meant. This is good stuff. He's on target here. He said, if the good life is simply increasing the quantity of pleasure, then there's no difference between a human being and a pig snooting around in the mud. So said Thomas Carlyle. Because the pig snooting around in the mud could possibly experience a great deal of pleasure. But you see, Carlyle said, there's a difference. Between, in fact, somebody, somebody. I, in fact, I got to look up who said this. Somebody said it is better. You might put this in your notes. It is better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Say amen. In other words, there are certain things that are unique to the human life that cannot be reduced to anything as simple as pleasure. The life of a dissatisfied Socrates is far more valuable than a life of a contented pig. Now you might think this debate is a little silly, all right? But this really was a big deal in the 19th century. Now John Stuart Mill <clears throat> came along, he was, a, he was a, in his early life a follower of Bentham and a follower of utilitarianism. John Stuart Mill recognized that Carlyle had backed the utilitarians into a corner. He was making them look silly. And so Mill said, I've got to find a way of defending utilitarianism that does justice to Carlyle's challenge. And the only way I can defend utilitarianism against the claim that it is a pig's philosophy is to introduce the notion of quality to pleasure. And so what John Stuart Mill did in his book called Utilitarianism, he's the guy who coined that word. He wrote a book with that title. What John Stuart Mill did was defend the notion that some pleasures are better than other pleasures. Now, do your instincts resonate with that intuition? Reading Pushkin is better than reading... And then I have to think of, see, I don't, I don't know who's, who's writing this, this junky literature these days. Pushkin is a famous Russian author. Reading Shakespeare, the pleasure you get from, even though you may not get a great deal of quantity of pleasure from reading Shakespeare, even that little quantity of pleasure from reading Shakespeare is superior to the pleasure you get from reading Garfield or reading Peanuts or Doonesbury. This is Mill's line of defending hedonism. Now, Mill did get into a little problem here, which I, I, I won't pursue. And uh, one of his problems was, <clears throat> how do we know whose pleasures are superior to other people's pleasures? Uh, isn't this a kind of subjective thing? I mean, you may get more pleasure from reading Peanuts than you get from Shakespeare, and then, of course, we all know the kind of person you are. Um, you probably have a great future in the ministry. I don't know. <laughs> but um, um, Mill did have the problem, whose pleasure counts when we come down to this matter of determining better pleasures from worse pleasures, inferior pleasures? <laughs> what Mill's position, what Mill's answer on that reduced to was this. Uh, just follow my guide. <laughs> follow my direction. My instincts and intuitions on pleasure are better than yours. That's what Mill obviously thought. But now, 
Mill, get this in your notes, this is an important transition statement, Mill thought he was rescuing utilitarianism for all time when in fact he was destroying it. And this is the reason why. Once a hedonist recognizes that some pleasures are superior qualitatively to other pleasures, he is in effect abandoning hedonism. Let me try and help you see this. I want you to imagine two pleasures. Pleasure A, whatever it is, and pleasure B. Now we can consider the quantity of pleasure here, but what Mill is saying is we also want to recognize that pleasure B, which could be the pleasure you get from playing chess as opposed to the pleasure you get from bowling. All right. This is a decidedly anti-redneck philosophy. I want you to realize that. If you say that the pleasure of B is higher than the pleasure of A, then you are comparing both pleasures according to some higher standard, which is not pleasure. There is a higher standard here, and you're saying pleasure B does a better job of satisfying that standard than pleasure A. But what you're doing when you do that is admitting that there is something higher than pleasure that is good. And that is inconsistent with hedonism. John Stuart Mill gave the whole world the only reason it needs to abandon hedonism, i.e. the recognition that some pleasures are superior to other pleasures, independent of their quantity. Well, we must hurry on here. After John Stuart Mill, hedonism took a different turn. Let me, let me just quickly put a different kind of chart on the board. Um, and I hope these charts will be available to the people who listen to the tapes. What I'm writing on the board now is utilitarianism. And, and we've, we've taken a look at what we've called hedonistic utilitarianism. That would be the work of Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill in the 19th century. After Mill, utilitarianism took a decidedly non-hedonistic course. We call it ideal utilitarianism. Now, all the term ideal utilitarianism means is it's utilitarianism of a non-hedonistic variety. Hedonism gets tossed out the window. Now, I'm going to sum up these two positions in these two expressions. Hedonistic, hed hedonistic utilitarianism. Always act in such a way that your actions produce the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, the greatest pleasure for the greatest number of people. That's hedonistic utilitarianism. Ideal utilitarianism said always act in such a way that your actions produce the greatest amount of good for other people. See, we're no longer talking about happiness. We're no longer talking about pleasure. We're simply saying perform those actions whose consequences produce more good overall than any alternative action. The major British philosopher whose name is associated with ideal utilitarianism was George Edward Moore, G.E. Moore, a man who uh, wrote his great book, uh, Principia Ethica, in the year 1903. You don't need to remember that. I think I would remember the name G.E. Moore. Now, I'm... I've given you arguments against hedonism. Now I want to put the nail in the coffin of consequentialism. 
I want to give you a couple of major reasons why no Christian ought to be any kind of utilitarian or consequentialist or teleologist. All right? Of all of the ethical theories open to us, utilitarianism or consequentialism is the one, uh, is, is the weakest one, uh, I am convinced. I'm trying to find my notes here. Here are a couple of considerations. Consequentialist ethics should be rejected because they can be used to support conduct that is, that is immoral. A consequentialist ethic should be repudiated because it's a, it can support conduct that is immoral. Um, and let me, let, me, let me quickly jump to the second point, which is really a kind of variation on the same theme. Uh, consequentialism, a consequentialist ethic, is consistent with implications that are sometimes revolting or ridiculous or morally unacceptable. That maybe is a better way to put it than that first point. Consequentialist ethics uh, lead to situations that are sometimes revolting or ridiculous or immoral. Some examples. I want you to imagine a country in which 90% of the people get pleasure or get happiness from torturing the other 10% of the people. Now, you don't have to think very hard to come up with countries in the history of the world that come close to this. All right. Suppose in Germany, now this was not true, of course, because many Germans had no idea what was going on in the cons. They didn't even know the concentration camps existed, but every member of the Nazi party did. But just imagine a country where the 90% majority delights in torturing the 10% of the people. Now, those other 10% could be Jews, all right, as has been the case. Or you can imagine a country where the majority takes delight in torturing Baptists, for example, or persecuting Presbyterians. Consequentialism is a moral theory that would, that would be happy with that kind of situation. You see, consequentialism runs contrary to what we know about justice, about what we know as the right. Here's another example. In his book, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley pictures a world that is hedonistically satisfying, but ethically revolting. Imagine, imagine a society that invents a happiness pill, all right? So that everybody in this society takes this happiness pill and they feel all of the pleasures, they feel all of the happiness that is needed to satisfy the ideals of a mill or a Bentham or anybody else. But they, once you take this happiness pill, you then engage in no meaningful or rewarding activity at all. You don't write books. You don't study. You don't, you don't play music. You don't do anything but simply lay around and feel happy. Now that would be a society that would be endorsed by any of these hedonistic models that we've examined because all of the pleasure is there but none of the other things that are necessary for a well-rounded society would be there. Here's another example. Imagine two people. Suppose person one experiences 50 years of pleasure while, doing, uh, while pursuing a life of complete idleness. 50 years of pleasure while pursuing a life of complete idleness versus a second person who experiences 49 years of equal pleasure from intellectual and noble pursuits. Now, which of these two people lived the better life? The consequentialist would say the lazy slob who lived, who had 50 years, 
as opposed to the noble intellectual self-negating um, um, uh, uh, life of the other person. Or finally, consider two communities that have equal amounts of pleasure and pain. In other words, you have on the same amount of pleasure in community one as you have in community two. But suppose in community one, you have people who are vicious, selfish, unjust, and sensual. Whereas in community two, the pleasure is derived from goodness and love and self-giving. But the amount of pleasure is the same. A, utili a utilitarian would have to tell you that these two communities are equal in value. Now what I'm trying to help you see is that utilitarianism runs contrary to all of our basic moral intuitions. It must be clear that concentration upon consequences alone does not lead us to a morally satisfying uh, result. And so we must look elsewhere if we are to find an adequate moral theory. What has happened in the history of ethics since John Stuart Mill and since the whole 20th century debate that has really kicked hedonism and consequentialism around is that there has been one more distinction made in the history of utilitarianism. So I've got to give you one more chart. And I apologize for this, but with this we'll be through. If any of you run into a professor these days who is a utilitarian, you'd better be a little careful. The argument that I've given you and the whole history that I've given you is adequate up to the start of the 20th century, but some things have happened in the last 40, 50 years that make it possible for academicians to be utilitarians and, they think, get around these problems. And here's how they do it. There is a distinction today made between act utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism. And in almost every case that you meet someone today in a philosophy department who is a utilitarian, he's going to be a rule utilitarian. Everybody I've talked to, everybody I've talked about to this point has been an act utilitarian. Now here's the difference. An act utilitarian justifies specific acts in terms of the utility of those acts. Should I pay my taxes? Should I tell the truth? Should I keep my promises in this situation? The act utilitarian would say, look at the specific consequences of that specific act in those specific circumstances and do the act, do the act, do the action rather, that produces the most good over evil or the most pleasure over pain. Now it was that whole system that ran into all of these objections that I've been hurling at you for the last two hours. Rule utilitarianism pretends that it's a different kind of theory and thus immune to this line of argument. It goes like this. Where we introduce considerations of of utility, consequences, good, is when we contemplate the rules that we are going to follow in our lives. Utilitarianism is no longer useful in choosing among conflicting acts, but utilitarianism is useful in deciding which rules we should follow. And so someone says to you, one rule of the moral life is always tell the truth. Why? And the, the rule utilitarian would think like this. Telling the truth issues in consequences that produce more good over evil than any alternative action. Uh, than any alternative rule, I'm sorry. Boop, boop, boop. Let me do a little slip. Why should I tell the truth? Why should I keep my promises? 
why should I do this or that? And the rule utilitarian says, because when you follow those rules, more people end up benefiting, more good ends up resulting than otherwise. Here's what bothers me about rule utilitarianism. <clears throat> I think it is a refuge, a refuge for humanists and secularists who recognize they've got to deal with duty and obligations but don't want anything to do with Christian ethics. For the life of me, friends, I cannot imagine a Christian philosopher with any brains in his head who's going to take refuge in rule utilitarianism. Because, you see, if your worldview is properly Christian, you recognize that you've got plenty of ways of grounding human moral obligations without resorting to the, to the machinations of, of, of the utilitarian here. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.